Jesus said, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and then out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. That is the promise of the Spirit. It, John went on to say, these things he spoke concerning the Spirit who was not yet given because Christ had not yet been glorified. And so we are recipients of a new covenant, and tonight we'll be speaking much on the Holy Spirit as we continue our series on basic discipleship, and topic number five deals with the doctrine of the Trinity. If you are online and did not get a handout, there's instructions there for you how to print one out. If you're not sure, just ask the people who are monitoring the, uh, the websites, and they'll answer your questions and tell you how to print one out. Let's bow together in prayer. Now, our Father, we thank you for all of the promises of the new covenant that you said you would forgive our sin, you would remember it no more, and then you would place the Holy Spirit in us, and that everyone from the greatest to the least could have a personal relationship with you, that we could all know you, and by the Spirit's change of life that he brings, that we are able in a new, fresh way to walk in your statutes. So, Lord Jesus, thank you for the promise you kept, that just as you said when you would ascend on high, you would send the Spirit, that you would not leave us as orphans. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, tonight that we would understand your person more fully. Uh, we know in our day that there are many cults that deny even your existence as God, and we pray as believers in the Word of God that we would be able to rightly divide the Word of truth to give a defense for the hope that's within us. So help me tonight and guide my own thoughts and words. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're with us for the first evening, uh, we are in a series called Basic Discipleship. This is our discovery class, and pastors on a regular basis will call the church and say, hey, can we use it? And we give them all the material. I said, just keep the copyright on it. I'm not thrilled with a lot of Christian publishers in our day. Sadly, there's a loss of integrity, and uh, I don't want to support a Christian publisher that I don't endorse and find my material in someone else's book as I have on a couple of occasions now. In either case, I want you to benefit from it and anyone you know. These are bedrock truths of the Christian faith. These are the things that really every Christian needs to know if they are to mature in Christ. 21 handouts in this course usually takes 45, sometimes 60 weeks depending on the questions and the things that come up in the discovery class. But we are giving it to you so that you can uh, equip others in turn. So uh, if you're with us for the first time, this tonight is the doctrine of the Trinity. We uh, opened up this subject last week. We're trying to get a clear understanding of what we mean by the triunity of God. We want to be able to defend the equality of each person of the Trinity. And that's where we started last week. First, we looked at the evidences in both the Old and the New Testaments for the oneness of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. That is not a New Testament doctrine. That is a doctrine that's taught in the Old Testament, but then reaffirmed in the New Testament. Both sides of the Bible teach God is one. And so that's an important truth. There is one God. We don't worship three gods. We worship one God. And then we began last time to examine evidences for the threeness of God. We saw that the Father is recognized as God. Most people don't deny that truth. 
It's assumed to be true. Uh, They may have a distorted view of God. They may call him Allah, which is really a false God unless you are an Arab Christian and you're using that term in a biblical sense. And so in some countries of the world, the name for God is Allah in a number of languages. But they don't mean the Allah of the Quran. They mean an entirely different Allah, the Allah of the Bible. Um, So languages are challenging and translations, and as words are abused, maybe other words should be adopted, and it's, it's happening. Then we looked at also last time, not only is the Father God, but the Son is God. And a rejection of the deity of Christ is very common amongst the cults. It's a central doctrine of the New Testament, and it is so essential. One of the handouts in the apologetic course, apologetic section of the course, is um, concerns the deity of Christ, and we'll spend a lot more time in depth on it. Tonight, we come to point C on your outline, the Spirit is God. So that's where we want to begin. If you're following along, I give usually kind of a summary paragraph of where we're headed. So typically, it says here, when people think of the Holy Spirit, they think of Him in a distorted manner. They tend to either deny His personality, reducing Him to a force or a concept, or they deny His deity, typically absorbing Him into the Father and thus denying His existence as a separate person of the Godhead. You know what I mean by that? Just like, um, you know, I might say, well, my spirit is grieved. So there's a spirit within Carl Brogy, so to speak, that, that dimension of my life, of course, that has been made new because of a birth from above, but we are three-part individuals, body, soul, and spirit. Sometimes just the uh, dichotomous view is taught of people that um, there is a body and a soul, and within the soul, the spirit is incorporated. But in a technical sense, the New Testament affirms the trichotomous view of man. That is, we are made up of three parts, body, soul, and spirit. So sometimes people say, oh yeah, the Spirit of God. He's just that portion within the Father, but not a distinct member of the Godhead. So um, point one here, the Bible asserts the deity of each person in the Godhead and unequivocally declares that the Holy Spirit is God. By the way, if you want a short abbreviation for the word God, just make the letter O and draw a line through the middle of it. And you will see that sometimes in commentaries and in writings, and that's the first letter of the Greek word theos. And so sometimes when I abbreviate God, I just put a zero with a line through it. Theta for theos or you can write out G-O-D, okay? While the scope of this handout is to demonstrate the Spirit is God, we need to ask, why do we refer to the Holy Spirit as a person? Why do we refer to the Holy Spirit as a person? The Spirit is a person with all of the attributes of personality, which is why Christ never used it, never used it when referring to God the Holy Spirit. In John chapters 14, 15, and 16, Christ spoke of the Holy Spirit as He, revealing to us that He is not a force or a thing, but a person. And that's important. When you refer to the Holy Spirit, don't refer to Him as it. He's not in it. He's not a force. He's not a thing. And we're going to see this whole handout, by the way, in the doctrine of the Trinity 
is a precursor to the next lesson that concerns the Spirit-filled life. And so before we, in the discovery class, discuss the Spirit-filled life in depth, we want people to have a grasp on the doctrine of the Trinity and what that means. But if you relate in an improper way to the Holy Spirit, you are not going to experience His fullness as God desires. Um, in John 15, 26, Jesus said, when the Helper comes, that's one of the titles for the Spirit, whom I will send you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. The pronoun he, you can circle it in the verse if you want, he will testify about me. The pronoun he in this verse is very significant because it is a masculine pronoun in the original Greek while the word spirit is a neuter noun. The word spirit, pneuma, can refer to wind, breath, or to the person of God, the Holy Spirit, but it's a neuter word in Greek. In, in, in case languages, like how many of you had Latin? All right, so a fair number of you. So Latin is a case language. When I was in high school, you still had to take at least two years of Latin. It's not pretty much required much anymore. But in a case language, everything is an agreement. If you have a masculine noun, typically you have a masculine pronoun. If you have a masculine noun, you have a masculine adjective that will modify that noun and so on. And that's an important point because the rule is broken here. Normally, number seven, uh, in Greek and in other case languages around the world, a pronoun must agree with the noun that it modifies. For example, if there is a masculine noun being used, then a masculine pronoun is used to modify a given noun, even in English. Though not nearly as precise a language as Greek, we follow the same basic rules of grammar. And let me just say, this is why I think God inspired the New Testament in Greek, because it is so precise. So, for instance, um, for by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves, it, it is the gift of God. What's it? Well, some would say it's faith. No, it's not faith because you have two different pronouns of two different genders. And when you have that construction, then it refers to the whole by grace through faith process. And so that's important. There's a precision in Greek and English carries it, but not obviously on the same level, which is why God wrote it in the language that he did. Even in English, though not nearly as precise, there are some basic rules of grammar. If I said John has a book and he loves the book, very clearly the pronoun he refers to John, right? Yeah, okay. We would not say John has a book and it loves the book, but rather we would say he loves the book. If I said the book is read, and it is a bright red, once again, the identity of the pronoun it refers, clearly refers to the book. So we do this in English, but I'm trying to make a point here that I think will make sense here in a moment. 13, the word spirit is a neuter noun. Again, the word pneuma, it can be translated wind, like the wind blows where it will, that's the word pneuma, or breath. <sighs> A man's breath, James talks about. If you've been reading through James, it appears for a moment and then vanishes. Same word, pneuma. Or the word pneuma can refer to God, the Holy Spirit. And again, like most languages, words find their meaning in a particular context. 
So is this swimming pool? Uh, when we use the word pool, is it a swimming pool? Is it a carpool? What, what do we mean? Well, context determines. The word spirit is a neuter noun, and in Greek, so typically, and so typically you would use a neuter pronoun to modify that word. So like typically when you see the word wind, they're going to modify it with the pronoun it because it's a neuter noun. However, the word spirit is modified in this verse with a masculine pronoun, breaking the rules of Greek grammar and not by accident. God the Son is emphasizing the personhood of the Holy Spirit. He is underscoring that the Holy Spirit is a person. For an in-depth study on the personhood of the Spirit, you might want to consider the course in the Institute of Biblical Studies on pneumatology, pneumatos, spirit, pneuma. So pneumatology is the study of the Holy Spirit. So we have a whole course on it. It's a few hundred pages long, but it might be useful if you'd like to dig further. There we examine how the Spirit's attributes confirm his personality. In Scripture, he is seen as displaying intellect. So when we speak of his attributes, it would be like he's omniscient, he's omnipotent, he's omnipresent. He has the attributes that only God has. Um, but those attributes, and we look at a number of them in the course, show that he's not a thing or a force, but he is a person. And in Scripture, he is seen as displaying intellect, uh, 1 Corinthians 2, he searches the deep things of God. He knows the things of God. Um, he displays emotion. Uh, the love of the Spirit, Paul says in Romans 5, 5, has been poured out into our hearts. When we sin, Ephesians 4, 30, for instance, says we grieve the Holy Spirit. You don't grieve a thing. You don't grieve a force. You grieve a person. And he has will. He makes decisions. And so if you've been born again on your spiritual birthday, he gave you a spiritual gift. And the gifts are given as he wills, as he decides. We don't decide, he decides. By the way, that's what makes you a person. You have intellect, you have emotion, and you have will. And by the way, angels are persons. They're not human persons. They're angelic persons. And we have been made higher than the angels, the Bible says, and someday we'll judge the angels, but in our course in angelology, we look at the angels have intellect, they have emotion, they have will. Since the Holy Spirit has the attributes of a person and has the ministries that only a person can have, as we will see in our next handout, we should relate to him as a person. So we'll look at that in the next um, handout on the uh, filling ministry of the Holy Spirit. I hope when you think of the Holy Spirit that you will not think of him as an influence or a force or floating fog or as a cloud or as a ghost or as a bird or as some empowerment like energy in a battery. He is none of these. He is a person. He's our friend. He's our teacher. He is the one who makes Jesus Christ real to us in our lives. Paul says he bears witness with our spirit that we've become a child of God. He makes everything real. It is important that we understand the personhood of the spirit because he is the person who regenerates us, who bears testimony to us that we are Christ and he is the one who is heartbroken when we sin. So when you feel that deep sense of heightened grief in your heart because you've done wrong against God, 
That's the Holy Spirit within your spirit who is grieved. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. If you put your hand on the burner, I have one hand and I cut the ulnar nerve in my arm and and so my left arm when I got caught in a lawnmower and I was 17 and they sewed it back and I've got a certain amount of feeling, but if I'm not careful, I could stick that, that finger right there on the burner and it would take a little bit before I realized, ooh, <laughs> it's cooking. Uh, <laughs> so uh, that's a good thing. God gives you nerves for sensitivity and he gives you the Holy Spirit such that you have a heightened conscience, conscience that the unbeliever does not have. When you understand the Spirit is a person, then you will interact with Him in that way, realizing how sacred your own person has become by His divine presence. Paul argues to that end in 1 Corinthians 6, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Broader context, he's dealing with sexual immorality in the church. He's reminding a believer that when he engages with someone to whom he is not married, he is bringing the Holy Spirit of God into that sin because we are temples of the living God. In understanding the Spirit is a person, you will be grateful to him, often thanking him that he is the one securing you for heaven in spite of all your inconsistencies. He secures you for heaven. That's an important truth that we cover in depth in the course on pneumatology. He is the earnest. He is the down payment. He is the guarantee that what God began, he'll complete. You give earnest money on a house, you're making a promise that, hey, look, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm serious about this house. And if you back out, you lose your earnest money. Well, the Holy Spirit is our earnest, and he never backs out. In fact, he's sealed in us, Ephesians 4.30 says, for the day of redemption. Uh, 25, when you understand the Spirit is a person, you will acknowledge that he is the one strengthening you to live a godly life, and you will give him the credit and not take it for yourself. In John 16, 14, 16, Jesus said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you. How long? Forever. Forever. So these people who say you can lose your salvation, that you can undo it, they're just contradicting dozens and dozens of passages that in one way or another affirm our security. He's with us forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not See him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And he says in, as he goes through this discourse, he said, he will take of mine and he will glorify me. He'll take of mine and he'll glorify me. I remember my first time ever in Richmond, Virginia. I think it was 1978. And I don't know what it's like today. It's been a long time since I've been down that promenade where they have all these magnificent statues. Now, some might take offense at them in our day, but the fact is they represent American history. And there's good and bad sides to history, and we can try to erase history. They're taking down statues of Abraham Lincoln in Boston. 
uh, beyond, it's beyond me. Uh, they decided that yesterday. Um, it's part of our history. And there's no perfect people, just like there's no perfect churches. And you can teach the south side of humanity as well as the north side of it when you use these. But when you drive down there, I'm, I'm off on a rabbit trail here, but when you drive down that road, you see these statues at night, they're really magnificent the way they illuminate them. And when you go through, you don't say, man, isn't that a magnificent spotlight? You don't, you don't even think about the spotlight. Look at that piece of carving, that sculpture. Incredible. Look at the detail. It draws your attention, the spotlight, to the statue. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. He doesn't come to glorify himself. He comes to show off Christ. And when you are in a movement where the fountainhead is the Holy Spirit, and the service is all about him, where people are fainting and shaking and laughing uncontrollably and barking like dogs and same kinds of expressions that are done in Kalamini Hinduism, exact things, exact same things, utterances and gibberish and so on, those movements are way out of whack. I mean, even if you didn't know what the Bible said, say taught on the gift of tongues, you'd have to stop and say, there's something not right here because the Holy Spirit didn't come to show off himself. He came to show off Christ, to lift Christ up. It is the Spirit, let's see, what number are we on, 26? Yeah, when you understand that the Spirit is a person, you will acknowledge that he alone can produce spiritual life in and through you, and that anything of any eternal value must have its origin in the Spirit. It is the Spirit, Jesus said, who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. That was in the context, he said, unless you eat of my body and drink my blood, you know, and they're accusing him of all kinds of things, and the statement is too hard, and he said, you missed the whole point. He's using symbolism to teach a deeper truth that the Spirit gives life. Uh, Such confidence, Paul says, we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So the Holy Spirit is not a force that you use or some energy source for your own personal gain. He is a person who is to be submitted to and the one who wants to glorify Christ through you. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. However, demonstrating the personality of the Holy Spirit does not include the proof that he is co-eternal and equal, or we could say co-equal, with the Father and Son. So those are two important words, co-equal, co-eternal. The Holy Spirit, there's never been a time when he has not been, just like there's never been a time when Christ has not been. They're co-eternal, they're co-equal. We're going to see when we come to our handout next time that while there are various roles within the Godhead, it does not mean that differing roles means that one is more God than the other, so on. Um, 29, while certainly the reverse is true, in other words, demonstrating the personality of the Holy Spirit does not include the proof that 
he is God, while certainly the reverse is true, because if you prove his deity, since God is a person, then he must be a person as God is, right? You follow that? Throughout the history of the Christian church, both the personality and the deity of the Holy Spirit have gone hand in hand. Every cult or deviation from Orthodox Christianity that rejects that the Spirit is a person always follows by rejecting his deity. So if you're in some group, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, whoever they are, they always reject him as a person. And whenever you find a group that rejects him as a person, they also will always reject him as God. Those who accept him as a person virtually always accept his deity. And those who have rejected his deity virtually always reject his person. Uh, Though in the history of Christianity, there have been a few false teachers who have believed he is a person without believing he is God. But it's such an aberrant, small group, I, I didn't spend any time on it. A careful study of Scripture reveals these truths stand and fall together. They stand and fall together. In a number of Old Testament passages, the Spirit of God is identified as Lord or Adonai. Remember we talked about in the preface to the New American Standard? How many of you had a chance to read that this week? Anybody? Yeah, a few of you. Good. Um, It's important that as you read the text, especially when you're in the Old Testament because they're translating Hebrew and the New Testament doesn't do this in, in Greek, Uh, you'll see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's one word. That's Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. Or you'll see capital L here, small letter O-R-D. That's Adonai. Or you'll see capital G, capital O, capital D, or capital G, small letter O, small letter D. Those are different Hebrew words that are being used, and that's an important thing to pay attention to because the names of God are reflect his personality and very often what he is communicating in a given situation. And Larry covered some of that when he did a thing on the names of God a couple of years ago. So in a number of Old Testament passages, the Spirit of God is identified as Lord or Adonai in places like Isaiah 6, 1 to 13, where we find Isaiah's vision of God and God's direct commissioning of Isaiah. Most of you know that passage. You know, he sees the Lord high and lifted up and so on. And, you know, who who will go for us, that that whole pericope. 36, of this Isaiah prophecy, we are told in Isaiah 9-8 that the prophet heard the voice of the Lord. So in Isaiah 9, it looks back at Isaiah 6, when Isaiah has that experience, You know, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. You know the passage. I'm not going to read it tonight. And it looks back at it, and he says what Isaiah heard that day was the voice of the Lord. Now, follow along here. The name that Isaiah uses for God in Isaiah 6.1 is Lord, the Hebrew word Adonai. The name, the name of God that means Lord or Master meaning the one to whom we bow down and serve. God is our Lord. He's our master. When we're converted, there's a certain acknowledgement of that. Now, sometimes Christians get that out of balance, and they front load the gospel with the lordship of Christ, and it seems almost like you make it a work. But very simply said, I often 
tell people when they call on the radio, what do you believe in lordship salvation? I said, look, take all the air out of the balloon. Christ will not save a man whom he cannot command. He won't save a person whom he cannot command. Because if we're not commandable, then we're really not acknowledging that we have a sin problem that needs forgiveness. That's another course on soteriology, so let's not go down there. What number are we on? 38, thank you. In Acts chapter 28, Acts 28, we just studied that recently, remember? Paul went under house arrest in Rome, references the encounter Isaiah had with the Lord. Now, the original reference that the Apostle Paul quotes is, and I'll read it now, Isaiah 6, 8 through 10. Then I heard the voice of the Lord, at least part of it, saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Isaiah said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. So that's a familiar text to a lot of you. There's a few chapters in Isaiah, most people know, at least Isaiah 6, Isaiah 9, and, and maybe Isaiah 53. Very clearly, when Isaiah introduces verses 8 through 10, the identical section that the Apostle Paul quotes in Acts chapter 28, we are told by the prophet Isaiah that this is what was spoken by the Lord. And again, it's the Hebrew word Adonai. Yet when the Apostle Paul cites this quotation from Isaiah, the sixth chapter, he does so by saying, the Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers. So do you see what he's doing? He is equating the Lord who spoke, quotes the same passage, but this time instead of saying the Lord spoke, he says the Holy Spirit spoke. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is the Lord. And Isaiah has already made that kind of reference between chapter 9 and chapter 6. In one passage, the Lord is credited with this statement, and yet in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is credited with this statement, therefore giving a clear affirmation of the Spirit's deity. By the way, Christ quotes that same passage. Remember in John 12, though he'd done so many miracles, in their presence, they were still not believing, and then he gives them an exhortation, you know, exhorts them. He says, look, while the light is among you, believe in the light so that you might become sons of light, sons and daughters, it's generic. And yet, while they were seeing so many miracles, they were not believing. They would not believe. And then John gives kind of a parenthetical note, quoting this passage. This is what Isaiah the prophet said. He, God, will harden their heart. He, God, will blind their eyes. He, God, will stop their ears. So there is a judicial decision that God can make on an unbeliever if they persist in unbelief. And that's why we're, we're having this discussion in staff meeting recently. There's an urgency. We invite people to respond. We can go to one of two extremes. You can exhort people to respond with no information and all you have is emotionalism. There's a lot of that floating around in our day. Emotionalism with no content. 
Or you can purely intellectualize the gospel and give the content of the gospel, but never ask people to make a decision. And then all you've done is educated them. And so there's the balance that God calls us to. He can work on either side. If someone hears the gospel somewhere else and then they get this emotional plea over here, maybe God will bleed the two together. I mean, he can do, he can, he's big, but there is a balance he calls us to as if God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God wants us to invite people to Christ. And sometimes we're cowardly. We say, hey, read this booklet. And uh, we'll leave it with them. And that's not a bad thing. You know, you leave the red booklet with someone and uh, maybe they'll think about it. Maybe they'll become a Christian and that happens. But sometimes when we actually take a person through the red booklet, we say, well, go home and think about this. No, invite them to make a decision. Invite them to receive Christ. It's important and because the Spirit works, and if people continually puts him off, he stops working. And so Jesus in the parable of the sower speaks of the seed that was sown, and the devil is given permission to take the seed, and then the text says, Jesus said that they may not believe and be saved. And of course, the greatest expression of that while it happens today is going to happen in the future with the coming Antichrist. So God's Spirit will not always strive with men. There's an end date only known to God whether a person has reached that, and we can't tell. Only God knows. We would have thought maybe the thief on the cross had reached that point. But there's not a lot of deathbed conversions in the Bible. In fact, there's only one, right? He's the only deathbed conversion in all the Bible. God gave us one so that we would not despair. We might have a sense of hope. But he gave us only one that none of us will presume because none of us have the promise of tomorrow. So what I'm saying is this is like this passage is quoted a number of times in the New Testament. It's a very important passage. Where are we? See, you guys are paying attention. <laughs> Your preacher needs to. In addition, sometimes the Holy Spirit is expressly called Lord. And here, notice the spelling, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. A name that can be used of no one but of God himself, the name by which God identified himself to Moses. The name of God, Lord, is made up of four Hebrew continents, yod Hey, vav Hey. And it occurs over 6,800 times in the Old Testament. These four Hebrew continents are known as the Tetragrammaton. Was once translated as Jehovah, which is a Latinization of the Hebrew YHWH. So in the Tyndale Bible, the Geneva Bible, they translated Jehovah, and in the, if you have an old copy of the predecessor of the New American Standard that first came out, first edition in the 50s, I have, a cop, I have a couple copies of the American Standard version, the ASV, and they translate YHWH Jehovah. There's no J sound, though, and there's no J in Hebrew. So with time and thought, people said, maybe we shouldn't say Jehovah. We should say, you know, maybe Yahweh or whatever. And then there's some, well, 
46. Prior to the time of Christ, the Hebrew people came to believe that YHWH, the divine name of God, was too sacred to be spoken. And so this sacred name of God stopped being vocalized. Now, the backstory behind that, remember, uh, the Jews were carried off to, by the Assyrians, and then the two southern tribes were carried off 122 years later by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., they were all up there. The Babylonian Empire had been thrown over. By, uh, the Assyrian Empire had been overthrown by the Babylonians. And so they're away in this place, and they lost their ability to speak Hebrew. It's, uh, you know, I, I was telling uh, a guy who's planning a, a church, and, um, and it's in a community in the United States where they speak a spe- specific language. I said, just remember, it's generation. It's one generation. Unless you teach their children... The scripture is in English because they live here in the States. Unless you do that, the church will die. So like where I grew up in New England, there was a Polish Catholic church. There was a German Catholic church. Um, there was an Italian Catholic church and all these different ethnic groups. And if you went to church there, it still it was in the, the mass was in Italian or Polish or German. And because they didn't, adapt to the next generation as their kids grew up, they all left. They all left. Which was not necessarily a bad thing in that situation because those churches sadly did not have the truth. But here I was speaking with uh, a Ukrainian Baptist church out on the West Coast, and I said, man, you've got to adapt. I said, your children, they speak English? She says, it's hard for us again to speak Ukrainian. I said, you've got to adapt. Or the church will just become a bunch of old people who will stop reaching the next generation and it will die. And by the way, all those churches in New England, they're, they're, they closed them now. When they had those sex scandals, scandals by all those Catholic priests who abused so many children, they had to sell billions of dollars of assets to pay uh, retributions on these families. Well, the Jews when they saw YHWH, remember in a Hebrew Bible, I read simpler Hebrew. I read Hebrew where all the vowels are there. But a Jew, most Jews, unless they have moved to Israel and they're learning Hebrew for the first time, they just read consonants. And your mind supplies the vowels. So the word car would be spelled C-R and you would car. Run would R-N, run. You'd supply the vowel in your mind. That's what Jews do. And so there's a couple of different ways in which you could vocalize Y-H-W-H. And because it was a sacred, it's by Jews, this name of God is considered the most sacred name of God. Hands down, you ask any Jew, what is the most sacred, blessed name of God? They're going to say Y-H-W-H, which they won't vocalize that. They'll just, when they come to it in the text, they say Adonai because they don't want to mispronounce it, because they're that reverent of God, and yet we go, oh, my gee, and this and that. and that. So because written Hebrew contained continents but no vowels, today it's unknown exactly how YHWH was pronounced by ancient Jews, though most Hebrew scholars believe it should be vocalized Yahweh. That's how they would insert the vowels, Yahweh. The very fact that the Holy Spirit is attributed 
with this same proper name is a clear and unarguable affirmation that he too is God. An example of the Holy Spirit being referred to as Yahweh is found in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, the occasion when God makes the promise of a new covenant to the nation of Israel. And I'll let you read Jeremiah 30, 27 to 34 on your own there. Once again, Jeremiah the prophet introduces this section of Scripture with the words, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. Days are coming, declares the Lord. In Jeremiah 31, 27, he uses the noun, Y-H-W-H, the sacred covenant name of God, expressing God's closeness to humans, like in Genesis 2, 7, when it says, the Lord, Y-H-W-H, breathed into his, meaning Adam's nostrils, the breath of life. When this passage from Jeremiah is cited in Hebrews chapter 10, it is introduced with the words, and the Holy Spirit also testifies to us for after saying, this is a covenant that I will make. So the Holy Spirit is equated in Hebrews 10 with the affirmation that is given in Jeremiah 31. These two passages taken together teach the Holy Spirit is Lord too. And there's some other passages. You can look at 2 Samuel 23, Acts 1, Psalm 78, Isaiah 63, where you see this interfacing, where one time it says the Lord, and the other time it says the Spirit, and it's the same text of Scripture. So the two are equal. And so sometimes God puts like commentary within the Scriptures. Like there's some Psalms that we don't know from the Old Testament who wrote them. But then we come to the New Testament and it says, and David said, oh, I didn't know David wrote that because when you go back to that Psalm, it doesn't say a Psalm of David. So sometimes the Holy Spirit puts divine commentary within the text itself. Another Old Testament, these by the way are thoughtful passages. You're like getting a fire hose of truth here tonight. So you have to go home and think about this. And these handouts that we give in the discovery class are made for that reason, for people to go home and study during the week. Uh, 54, another Old Testament example affirming the deity of the Spirit can be seen on the occasion just before Moses died on top of Mount Nebo, when he gathered the children of Israel together and, recommended, and recounted God's faithfulness to them as a nation. When he recalls Jacob's experience, he writes this in Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance... When he separated the sons of man, he set boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of a wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He guarded him as the pupil of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young, he spread his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. The Lord alone guided him, and there was no foreign God with him. Now, let me make a few comments on that passage. Moses plainly stated that when YHWH, I'll vocalize it, Yahweh, found Israel in the desert of Egypt, that he protected him. As the pupil of his eye. That's what we just read. Actually, the Hebrew, I gave you the lower rendering. The little man of, of the eye. The little man of the eye. I kind of like that. That little dot in the center of your eye, the pupil. In Hebrew, it says the little man of the eye. 
and the Lord, also, the Lord alone guided him. And yet, and yet, when Isaiah describes God's protective care, he tells us in Isaiah 63, 14, that it was the Spirit who did this. And he relates, here's a part of it, Isaiah 63, 14, as the cattle which go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make your for yourself a glorious name. So Isaiah, you read the whole chapter, it pops for you. He's relating the same truth that Moses said, that the protective care of God, the Lord, he attributes it to the Spirit in Isaiah 63. Once again, putting these truths side by side, it is very clear as God progressively revealed the Trinity that the Spirit is equal to the Lord. The Spirit is expressly called God also in New Testament scriptures. So I took the time to go through some of those Old Testament scriptures because some people say, well, this is just a New Testament doctrine. It's not. God the Holy Spirit is identified as the Lord, as Yahweh, or as Adonai in the Old Testament. But he's certainly described that way in the New Testament. A simple, straightforward passage affirming the deity of the Holy Spirit is found in Acts 5, 1 through 6. So if someone said, well, show me one verse in the Bible where it shows the Spirit of God is God, this would be at least one passage we ought to be able to turn to. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard it. The young men got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now, Ananias was guilty of the sin of lying by seeking to deceive the Christians in Jerusalem, namely the apostles, those leaders, by trying to gain a reputation for greater generosity than he deserved. So he wants to go to the apostles. So everybody says, oh, Ananias and Sapphira, what generous people they are. Ananias' sin was misrepresenting his gift by claiming that he was giving the total amount that he had received, when in reality, it was only a portion of the sale. Hey, Ananias, wonderful. How much did you sell the land for? 100,000. What did he sell it for? 150,000. So he misrepresented it. Rather than allowing the Holy Spirit to fill him, as had been the consistent witness of the church, and there's some passages that reference that, Ananias had allowed Satan to control his heart. This passage has been abused by some to teach socialism. But the gift they gave was not mandated, for they, have, they could have kept it for themselves. So it's not like, we want everyone here to sell your property and bring a portion of it or bring it all to us. No such thing. This is a free will offering, and they were no less inspired by Barnabas the son of encouragement. And they thought, man, look what Barnabas did. And, and maybe people were so encouraged, they thought, we'd like a piece of that. And their motivations were all twisted. 
However, this passage does very clearly teach that by deceiving God's people, Ananias was deceiving the spirit who indwells the church. Christians today can lie to the Holy Spirit by pretending a devotion that is not theirs, or maybe a surrender of life that they have not really made. All right. Ananias's sin resulted in Ananias's sin resulted in what the apostle John calls a sin leading to death, premature physical death. So John talks about maybe you're someone who you're aware of and they're very clearly and we'll speak about this as we work through the book of James because it naturally fits in. You're aware of someone who is getting ready to die. He says, don't even pray for him. Because it's apparent that the death, the physical death that's coming on this individual is from the hand of God. And there are examples of that even in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 11.30, some of you are sick, some of you are weak, and some of you have fallen asleep or died. Why? Because God said enough is enough. And he takes a person home sooner than the person should have gone home. And Ananias experiences sin leading to death. Now, while a believer can still commit a sin leading to physical death, there have been times when God will act very seriously in order to set an example so that we might know how he thinks. Jude 7, for instance, tells me that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. How? As an example So he destroyed it as an example of how he feels concerning the sin of sodomy when he left the twin cities in smoking ruins. But God doesn't destroy every sodomite city. If he did, San Francisco wouldn't be on the map today. And Atlanta would probably have to be burned down. But God sometimes does something once as an example. Now, God still can bring about physical death, but if God brought somebody down every time they lied, we, we, we wouldn't have any church members left, would we? So Ananias lied, and the blanket committee came in and buried the guy. In 1 Corinthians 10, 6, we're told that God judged with death the sins of the children of Israel as an example for us to avoid. These things I've written as an example to you, he says. He talks about all these people who fell in a single day. Now, it goes on today, but we just don't see it in the same way. Remember, there was a time in human history when God had all his people pretty much in one place. So if God was going to take some folks down, you'd see like a visible expression of a whole bunch of people going down in one day. Now God has his people spread out all across all the nations of the world. One here and one there and one there and one there. And you don't see it in the same way, but it's still going on. But not always in the same seriousness. That's one of the points I'm trying to make here. So I suppose, number 72, that if God acted today as he did in the early church, then funeral homes would have more work uh, than they do today. (laughs) Um, God had revealed to Peter what Ananias had done, which no doubt crushed Ananias because he expected praise for his spectacular gift. Because his sin of seeking the praise of men was a public sin, it was appropriate that his sin be exposed publicly. 
This illustrates the biblical principle that secret sin, secret sins should be dealt with secretly, private sins privately, and only public sins publicly. When Peter told Ananias, Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, he was not accusing Ananias of lying to the church or to the apostles, but to the Holy Spirit himself. As noted earlier in this handout, the Holy Spirit exhibits the qualities of personhood because one can only lie to a person. But also note the identification of the Spirit as God in these verses. When the apostle Peter follows his accusation that he had lied to the Holy Spirit, he follows it with the words, you have not lied to men, but to God. In other words, to lie to the Holy Spirit was to lie to God. And so he is giving a clear affirmation of the Spirit's deity, that the Spirit is God. This is one of the simplest New Testament passages to prove that the Holy Spirit is God, because if lying to the Holy Spirit is lying to God, it necessarily follows that the Spirit must be God. The deity of the Holy Spirit can also be defended by comparing passages like, say, 1 Corinthians 3, 16, with, say, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, and 20. In 1 Corinthians 3, 16, twice over, believers in Christ are referred to as the temple of God. And the reason given in this verse as to why God uses this designation is because the Spirit of God dwells in you. You're the temple of God. How do we know? Because the Spirit of God dwells in you. In addition to being called the temple of God in 1 Corinthians 3, God's people were referred to as the temple of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19, we just read that. Don't you know your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit? Again, making the Holy Spirit equal to God, equal to God. To refer to God's people as both the temple of God and the temple of the Holy Spirit is to affirm that the Holy Spirit is God. The same argument could be made from, say, 2 Corinthians 6.16, where the Apostle Paul writes, for we are the temple of the living God. Once again, to be the temple of the Holy Spirit and the temple of the living God is to directly teach that the Holy Spirit is God. Another example we could cite to demonstrate the Holy Spirit is God concerns the occasion when Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. We just came through the Christmas season, and many of you are fresh with that passage. So, for instance, in Luke 1, 67 to 69, Luke records for us what happened eight days after John was born when God restored Zacharias' ability to speak. Let me read it. And his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by, our, by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father to grant us that we being rescued from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. So while filled with the Holy Spirit, Zacharias prophesied 
making him a living conduit of God's truth, of God's word, of God's truth, all right? So he's a living conduit of God's word and God's truth. And while prophesying, he stated specifically that the God of Israel, by the way, God, G-O-D, Lord, uh, those issues aren't in the New Testament because there's just one word in Greek. So it's just as you're reading the Old Testament, you look for those different spellings, right? Go home and read the preface if you haven't read it yet. Um, So uh, while prophesying, he stated specifically that the God of Israel was the one who spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Similarly, when the apostle Peter writes of the Old Testament prophets, he tells us in 2 Peter 1.21, which is one of the 100 verses I think every Christian should know, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So follow here. So we are told that while Zacharias prophesied like all the holy prophets of old, and when this happened, it was God who spoke. It was God who spoke. Yet the apostle Peter plainly states the same truth, telling us that when all the prophets spoke from God, they were able to do so as they were moved by the Holy Spirit and so making the Spirit equal to God. And by the way, we will really spend a little bit more time on this next week when we come into the section on the doctrine of the Trinity. So we're, we're talking about God is one. We're talking about God is Father, God is Son, God is Spirit. And then next time, we're going to talk about the triunity of God and how the Trinity functions together. 94. Also, 2 Corinthians 3.17 directly refers to the Spirit as the Lord. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, clearly a reference to his deity. That would be another simple one. Dozens of other passages also demonstrate the Spirit's deity and that he has the characteristics that only God can possess. He has the characteristics that only God can possess. For instance, he exhibits omniscience. And I've given you a number of passages where Father, Son, and Spirit express omniscience. The Spirit also exhibits omnipresence. Where can I flee from your spirit? Psalm 139, most of you know that. He exhibits omnipotence, and he exhibits eternality. He has no beginning or end. Those are characteristics, omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, eternality, that only God has. So the Spirit's deity is seen in that he has the infinite attributes of God, and it is seen in that he does the works that only God can perform. The Holy Spirit was involved in creating the world. We'll look at that more next week. And the incarnation, we'll look at that next week. And in the inspiration of Scripture. All Scripture is what? Theos neustos, God breathed. We, 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 we translate it inspired. But literally, all Scripture is God breathed. Or all Scripture is given by inspiration of the Spirit. By the inspiration of God, 2 Timothy. Well, if all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God, and elsewhere it says that the Spirit is the one who inspired the Scripture, then you see, what we're going to see next time is you really can't separate God up. And while they can act in a certain way where the Father is credited with this or the Spirit is credited with this or the Son is credited with this, we're going to see that while they are distinct persons, they are absolutely inseparable. 
In addition, the Holy Spirit is involved in our salvation as seen in our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification when salvation is complete. We'll look at that more next week. The Father is credited with justification. The Son is credited with justification. So is in the Holy Spirit. As we studied earlier in this section, if the worship of the Lord Jesus and his acceptance of that worship is a proof of his deity, it obviously is, even so the worship of the Spirit is proof of his deity. Remember when we discussed that last week, we looked at examples where people worship Jesus. Well, you shall worship the Lord thy God in him only. To worship anyone other than God is absolute blasphemy. And yet Christ received worship. Why? Because they believed he was God. And so they worshiped the Spirit in Scripture. When the disciples are worshiping God in Acts 4, you should go home and read that chapter. I gave you the verses, 24 to 31. The work of the Holy Spirit was included in their prayer of praise. They're praising the Holy Spirit. They're worshiping him. In addition, we find the Spirit being worshiped in the many prayers or benedictions in the New Testament, affirming that he is God and receives worship. Again, for a much more in-depth study on the Spirit being God, I would suggest the course we offer in the Institute of Biblical Studies on pneumatology. Let's bow our hearts together in prayer. Holy Spirit, we are so thankful for you. You are the one who worked and stirred in us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. You came as Jesus foretold, to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And you did that very thing in our lives. And because of that, we have become a forgiven people. Thank you that on the day that we were redeemed, that you came to live in us. That you are our helper, the one who comes alongside and wants to be there for us and to walk through the paths of life. Thank you that your presence in our life, you wrote through the pen of the Apostle Paul, is our earnest, our guarantee. And as God the Son said, that you would be with us forever. And thank you that though the Father will raise our bodies and the Son will raise our bodies, you are also credited with raising our bodies out of a grave or off the earth if we're alive for that event. We're just so grateful to you. And, and thank you that even when we don't know how to pray as we ought, as we've already studied in this course, that you intercede on our behalf. Thank you for the double intercession of both the Son and the Spirit, Father. Thank you, Father, that you've loved us with an eternal, everlasting love, that you gave the greatest demonstration of giving us your Son. Thank you that you were in Christ reconciling the world to yourself. We owe everything to you. We praise you and worship you tonight in the Spirit and in Jesus' holy name. Amen.